Hello, welcome to some Derp's Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. Uh, and today we're going to talk about the thing we tried to talk about last week before <laughs> Buddy had to go, which is uh, too much, which is how much is too much part two. So this is part two of part two. So, you know, it's like the old Half-Life 2 joke, like Half-Life 2, like, like there was no Half-Life 3, but then there was Half-Life 2 stories and that got two parts and then get a third part. So we're just going to keep anyway. Uh, okay, so the before, general thesis yeah. of this episode was a follow-up to the previous the, the previous idea, right? Which was us talking about in some of these live service games, right? How much is too much to kind of put in front of your player to do? So to use an example like World of Warcraft, you know, you have world content. You have world quests and dailies and rares to kill. You have Mythic Plus dungeons to do that go into that that feed into the vault and give you very high level gear. You have raids to do that feed into the vault and give you high level gear. You have arenas and raided battlegrounds that you can do that feed into the vault and give you high level gear. You have collecting that you can do. You have achievement hunting that you can do. You have all of these different activities, right? Um, and when presented with them, when presented with this kind of smorgasbord of stuff to do the question becomes how much is too much like when are you putting too much in front of a player that you are not encouraging them to have a good full gaming experience but instead you are encouraging them to essentially burn themselves out by doing absolutely everything all of the time um which is an interesting question we talked for an hour about it right you know the normal stuff the interesting question though is what happens when you take that model and you kind of apply it to a single-player game, right? Because single-player games also tend to have a million different things to be doing at any individual time, right? And those things have only increased over time as we've gotten bigger and more powerful games that are bragging about being bigger and more powerful compared to some of their counterparts from however many years ago, right? Skyrim is bigger than Oblivion is bigger than Morrowind is bigger than whatever, right? And... Uh, through that vein, through the vein not of a live service game where you are kind of keeping up with, you know, the seasonal the seasonal model to this game, but from the perspective of this is a premium purchase, I'm going to buy it for 60 bucks. how much is too much to that to present to a player? Um, so, and th and there, was, yeah. th there is a second part to that that I do want to hide up top, is that um, part of this too is... Um, also talking about the breadth, right? Like the, the part of the thing that in, that inspired me to pitch to to, to, to push it the second week, and I'm not going to do the bit again. Um, but uh, I've been watching the Tim Rogers Cyberpunk 2077 review, and part of the thing he points out about Cyberpunk 2077 is even beyond like beyond like the amount of stuff in the game, the breadth of the way you play, um, and this is true of a lot of open world games, kind of gives you so much so much options, but you all you kind of end up filtering yourself typically towards a, an optimal strategy um, because you have to do, like, because you have to make the game playable to everybody in every play style, right? Um, there's usually some optimal strategy that kind of trivializes the game. Um, in Tim Rogers' case for Cyberpunk, it was Quick Hacks. Um, in, uh, and, you know, the Skyrim meme is Stealth Archery, uh, that kind of thing. So I think there's two facets there, right? Like, um, how much in terms of systems and how much in terms of actual content. Um, just as a quick note, I, you, you were talking about Skyrim Morrowind. Daggerfall is actually the biggest video game world of all time. That uh, is true. That's actually why I avoided okay. saying it's bigger than Daggerfall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was all auto-generated and it was terrible, which I think is an interesting part of this discussion, right? Like, you know, yeah. 
because um, that was definitely too much, which is why they made it smaller. Um, yeah, but um, yeah. So the 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 piece about quick hacks is and stealth archery is really interesting because like I I feel an impulse to sort of defend stealth archery from a design perspective, right? Um, and here here's here's the the bedrock of my claim, I guess, when it comes to stealth archery. I think it is not a I don't think it is a representation of water finds a crack, right? I think it is a representation of activating a different kind of game mode inside of a game that has multiple sort of game modes that you can approach from it, right? So the classic example might be something like Deus Ex, where you can have sort of a guns blazing build, or you can have sort of a stealth build. And the thing about the the difference that that I really want to strike here is that um, something like Quick Hacks. I, I, to be fair, I have not watched the full video, so I haven't seen this part about Quick Hacks. The thing about Quick Hacks is it trivialize. It is a combat focused strategy that trivializes combat. Right? You just walk up, you use your Quick Hacks. Uh, my understanding is that the quick hacks like spread to other people. So they're all clubbed together. You hit one of them, it spreads to the others and they all drop dead. Is that right? Uh, I mean, there's, there, that's one of the ways you can do it. Yes. There, there's, it's very customizable. There's a lot of powers, but yes, that is one of the things that can happen. Okay. So the thing that that is doing, which I, I think is different than stealth archery is essentially saying, okay, I am going to find the most efficient way to defeat this combat encounter, right? By essentially, whatever, casting a spell that immediately kills my opponents before they ever have a chance to respond, essentially one-shotting them, you know, entirely. The thing about stealth archery that I think is different is that it is not a, it is not about defeating the combat encounter. It is about replacing the combat encounter, right? The challenge of stealth archery is keeping yourself in stealth, right? It is it is dealing with stealth mechanics. It's keeping you know out of eye lines and you know in low light areas. It's it's hitting someone and then retreating and waiting for them to reset so that you can go back and, and hit them again, right? Like all of those things are real challenges and they're real tactics and strategies that you have to employ. And there is a failure case where you do get uncovered from stealth and have to fight the encounter. And obviously, over time, it gets easier and easier to you know to do this in a game like Skyrim because your sneak goes through the roof and you buy shoes that you know excuse me muffle your um muffle your footsteps and you know you you learn spells that can they can reset combat right you know um charm spells or whatever that can that can force someone out of combat so that you can get back into stealth right but all of those things are advancing this this sort of parallel stealth gameplay which is in a sense, being layered on top of and replacing the gameplay of a combat encounter, right? Whereas the thing that Tim Rogers is explaining isn't, it's not really replacing anything, right? It is just substitute, it is just doing the thing to defeat the combat encounter in one one maneuver, right? Um, which is why I want to, and I, and I, which is why I want to split split that hair. So because I, I do think it's important. I will agree. So think about this. I I agree that there is a set. It is a separate failure mode now that you put it up. But I still think it's a failure mode. So the failure mode, I think, for uh, Cyberpunk and the Quick Hacks is, I think, to your point that you know, um, is that the Quick Hack mini game is not compelling. Right. 
Um, like the quick hacks aren't really a mini game, and then like the the parts like the the hacking around it that that works with it, right? Like hacking into security cameras and whatever. Like that mini game of like clicking like rows and of of pairs of digits. That's not super compelling. Um, and I think that's that's the failure mode for the for the quick hack side of it is that the the gameplay that surrounds that loop isn't compelling. Um, which is something that you've pointed out. Like stealth archery has compelling elements. I think the failure mode yeah. for stealth archery is that everybody is driven to it because kind of version one of stealth archery is applicable is, is there's no reason not to take it right like you were always almost always going to have the drop on an opponent in a, in a combat so you might as well pull out a bow and take a stealth shot and so it kind of funnels everybody to at least doing a little bit of stealth archery and because it's so universal i think it funnels everybody down that path which i think is 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 is, is it's it's failure mode as it were um, yeah, I also do think that players are risk averse, right? Which yeah. is which is part of this. Um, even in a game like um, even in a game like Far Cry, right, which also sort of has a stealth archery path and a guns blazing sort of path, right? Um, the the thing that happens in a game like Far Cry that's kind of interesting is that you get big bonuses for doing things in all stealth, but it is harder to sort of pull that off right um which is to say that it's it's harder to get you know guards to reset or whatever once they know you know like they are they are on some level of alert and that and that is is tough right and on top of that there's all these extra pieces there's alarms throughout a camp right that that might need to go off right or um or that might like go off there there might be you know like reinforcements that arrive that that kind of thing um and um and i think in that sort of situation it increases the amount of risk to going the stealth archery sort of path and even though i do think a lot of people probably do play far cry from that sort of stealth archery perspective it is more truly a replacement for a combat simulator than something like skyrim right where it really doesn't feel like there's a downside to at the very least starting combat by plinking away with enough arrows until the guy sees you and then you get out pull out, pull out your sword and start wailing on him right yeah um i think i think that's exactly correct um the far the far cry thing i think also has it like if you decide to ignore the bonus, right? Like, I, I think I think it's again a third failure mode, which is you incentivize a particular mode of play over your other modes of play, right? With bonuses, but even if yep. you even if we ignore that, right? There's still no disadvantage to pulling out your sniper rifle and taking a shot, even if it's not silenced, right? Like your first shot is probably going to be out of a sniper rifle at somebody to like one shot somebody. Right. Yeah, and uh, that game also trivializes it, or it's it's complicated because some of them have silenced weapons and some of them don't. But the most efficient way to deal with any encounter in Far Cry is to get up on a hill with a silenced sniper rifle and just mow a bunch of people down. Right before that, you just take a million headshots, and you know maybe to a certain extent that's fun. Maybe to a certain extent, you know, I, I've definitely fucked up a headshot, and when a bullet goes whizzing by someone's head in that game, they are alerted to it, and you have less ability to react to that sort of thing, right? Um, you know, in in Far Cry, the alarms um, are are something that you like want to deal with as a um, as a stealth operative because if they see triggered or if they see if you shoot an alarm from really far away and they see it, that will trigger them, right? Um, but 
Yeah, like it, 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 it. I feel like there is no version of a game where you cannot progress to such a point that you have trivialized its combat by leveling up and, and creating a build, um, sort of built around trivializing the combat. Yeah. So, so this is this is an interesting thing because I, I think the game, like, so, so two different things here. First, you said that like you know the sniping can be fun. I agree. But the, the problem, I think, is, is like, you know, a game like Sniper Elite, right, is built around the sniping and does the sniping, like, as this pretty exclusive thing, right? What you have with something like Far Cry is a game that supports all of these modes of play and puts a bunch of dev, dev you know, effort into all these modes of play for people to only play Sniper Mode, which is, like, not as good as, like, Sniper Elite, right? Like, a Sniper Elite put all of its effort into, like... Literal, literally, like, testicle shredding animations for the sniper, yep. right? Um, Not to mention that Sniper Elite is much harder than Far Cry sniping, right? right? Like, obviously, it, most games take a lot of liberties with this, but one of the things that is a neat draw about Sniper Elite is that, one, you don't have a lot of bullets, and two, every it, like, it is an incredibly dangerous sort of thing to be, uh, to kind of, like, be engaging in, right? Um Though I will say, like, obviously all of these are single-player games and people, right? Like, I I don't really end up doing a lot of sniping when I'm playing when I'm playing Far Cry. Um, my my preferred mode of play is to be relatively close quarters, um, you know, stealth person. Mostly using the bow and arrow. You can't use the bow and arrow from super far away, but you can use it pretty close range. It's also a silent weapon. Um, and the big thing about the bow and arrow is it basically one hit kills anything on the on a body shot, which is pretty huge. Um, but like, yeah, I, I, I definitely think that, uh, I definitely think that the, the funnel exists for sort of all of these games and to a certain extent, it, that's just, uh, uh, that, that is the water finds a crack piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah. Um, and the thing I wanted to bring up is that I think Deus Ex, um, you know, uh, what's what's the, you know specify the the, the deluxe edition or the the, the director's cut um, does a good job of making it a different experience for each of the modes of play right it's also much it's sure. a much smaller game it's not exactly an open world game right but like the stealth game is a very different game like playing this a stealth run is a very different run than playing the guns blazing run does does that make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, th- I think they do it well. And I think I think that's actually kind of at the core of a lot of my criticism of um, of a lot of these games is that because all – basically the developers have decided that all encounters must be defeated by every play style. Whereas I think the correct way to do it is to just lock people out of certain opportunities – um, if they're cer- if they're certain specs, right? Like like that's kind of like the reward of, of the gameplay. There, there's like I think development issues there, but I think from like a, a pure kind of like you know not taking into account dev reality's point of view that the the right way to do it is to is to have certain certain things that can only be accomplished by certain characters, um, and so and so each character has a different run through the game because there's only there's they can't you know your Close quarters person can't defeat every encounter that the long range person can, and vice versa. And so there's yeah. and so there's reason to pick other uh, alternate options. 
or or something that I think about a lot is is like the contours of the of the experience are different, right? So even if I'm walking into the exact same outpost with the exact same enemies, right? Maybe if I'm a close quarters person, the flamethrower guy who has a lot of body armor and won't die with a single with a single arrow shot is very dangerous for me, right? And I have to plan around him in a much different way, right? Versus if I'm if I'm playing the sniper, well, that guy is actually pretty easy to just headshot from across the distance. But the tough the the tough thing for that play is maybe there's um <clears throat> you know maybe there's a guy who you know pats around, but he he stays mostly indoors, and I just it's very hard to get a sight line on him, right? And I have to and I have to find a good way, right? The contours of those two two experiences are very different depending on the approach because the individual enemies inside of it are meaningfully different yeah I, I i can see that i think i think that's a little bit harder to pull off because i think you end up you know kind of like down the funnel it's like well the guy that pats around inside is actually trivialized by the sniper because he's the last enemy and you just walk, walk up and shoot him with a shotgun right whereas like you have to fight the flaming body armor guy right like in in combat at some point and you can't necessarily isolate him right like like, like this is like kind of an example i, I think that's a harder yeah. one to pull off is is, is the is, the thing I'm trying to to pinpoint here. Okay, so a lot of this is is um, obviously interesting, but it is a little bit secondary to what to what we are uh, coming here to talk about, right? Um, so, where do you think the I guess the like the too much is too much single player stuff kind of hits in in the discussion in, in in what way i'm sorry i, I don't quite follow your, your, your i just mean i just mean to say so so we've been talking a lot about the different approaches that you can have to a game like this right right but when it comes to how much is too much stuff how does that interact with all of these different approaches right is trying to make a game that supports multiple different approaches the source of this too much problem that are in some of these single player games where i burn out on mass effect andromeda even though i i, I may like huge portions of it because it's asking me to go do some you know stupid world puzzle that i don't want to do so i think i think i think that's part of it right like that um that it's asking you that it's that it's asking you to do too many things i also think part of it is that for the type of person who likes to be completionist which i think is what you're gonna like you know generously call your like core gamer type right like um because the developers expect, like, the developers plan as if your gamer is going to either, it, your, your, your average player is going to do, like, the main quest line and a handful of side objectives, right? Whereas I think the reality is more like you've got, like, it's instead of being, like, a, 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 like a, a, a curve, right? Like, you know, with, like, you know, you know, most people do, like, the main quest and a couple things. I think it's actually kind of bimodal, right? You've got, like, the person that does, like, the bare minimum um, and then the person that does everything right and the person that does everything is going to be very overpowered very quickly right like the, the way i finished far fight Cryark 5 is i did a ton of stuff in my first area i did basically none of the side content in the set in the second two areas because i didn't have anything left to unlock right there was no there was no reason to other than like a couple of like cosmetic things right or a couple yeah. of specialty things um uh and and then on the other side like you know the get that game is very like I think they designed the game, to, or it seems to me that the games are designed to be 
completable but tough for that person that doesn't really do anything. Um, and you like, I don't think the harder difficulties scale hard enough for in in most games for the person who wants to do um, who wants to do everything because a lot of it translates to just pretty raw power, right? A game that I think does this kind of well is Elden Ring, which has a ton of stuff to do, but a lot of the power gains are pretty lateral, right? Like your reward at the end of, of, of most things is an item of some sort. Um, but like, it's usually like one of a set, right? Like it's a charm for which you have like a handful of slots or it's a spell that like, you know, maybe your character can't even ca can't cast that type of spell or any spell, or it's a, you know, a weapon, um, of which you're using one or two and the given weapon might not be the types of type of stat that you're specializing in. Right. And I think that works out a lot better. And, um, and it doesn't, for whatever reason, I, and maybe this is just me being a, an Elden Ring fanboy, but like finding an item that I can't use, but that I know would be useful for some character doesn't feel as bad, um, as kind of like, you know, redundant power, right? Like, like there's like, there was like, you know, like some tens of upgrade points, if I recall correctly, in Far Cry Five, and I got almost all of them in the first area. Like I said, right? Um, and also, like there's like, and I didn't. I think part of it too is I didn't find them particularly like the the challenges to get them particularly compelling. Um, whereas like you know in, in Elden Ring, the the dungeons are are like they repeat some assets, but they're all a little bit different. And I find, like, the challenge itself to be rewarding, even if I'm not, you know, doing anything, getting anything particular out of the, out of the rewards. Yeah, I also think that Elden Ring, you know, one of the things we talked about is Elden Ring doesn't have a map and it doesn't have, like, markers for this stuff. But, like, you know, I went back to Assassin's Creed Valhalla the other day and that map is full of markers, right? Including in the bottom corner for any region that you're in, it shows you the number of treasures and the number of, like, little anomalies uh that you have investigated and you have left to investigate. And just those UI elements have a really powerful kind of psychological effect to get me to kind of chase these things down. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So actually I, I have, I, it's kind of a question in that, in that vein, right? Like how, how valid do you think it is for, for like, you know, somebody to say, you know, if it's bothering you, turn off those UI elements and ignore them. And that's the right – because part of me wants to say, like, okay, but it's there, right? Like, and I kind of – and, you know, it, it feels weird kind of ignoring it, right? Like, like, Elden Ring doesn't put it in the game, and I could go find it outside the game. But the fact that I have to step outside the game to go find it makes it not as compelling to me as it, as it being, like, a toggle in the game. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, I wish this stuff was toggled off by default, right? Like, I do think that there, here, here's the, the, the best case scenario, right? I talk a lot about upsides and downsides. Anytime in any game, any decision has ever been made, it is because someone weighed the upsides and downsides, right? Right. Um, which is a little bit different than what a lot of, like, I feel like if I'm, if I'm watching a YouTuber, they are talking about good and bad design choices that are made throughout the course of, you know, like, th throughout the course of a game, which can sometimes paint this picture that, like, well, I cannot believe these fucking idiots made this choice, right? What absolute morons kind of thing. But the reality is that every, like, like every decision 
inclusion has has positives and negatives, right? And I think the big upside to including a UI element that shows you all of the stuff in the map, right, that you could be doing is that for a player who is really engaged with your title, that player wants to see that there is constant extra stuff to do, right? That you can really go hard and and get every little nook and cranny, right? That there is always some new side quest or puzzle to solve or whatever else somewhere on the map to go sort of investigate. And I think the downside is that you burn players out, right? The players see all of this stuff, they are sort of, they feel this compulsion to complete an area before moving past it. Um, And that experience burns them out of the game because they are not doing something that like legitimately interests them in a sort of second to second gameplay. They're just ticking these, these check marks off of a, off of a to to do list. Right. Um, And that causes churn. And I feel like if you are in that, if, if that's the dichotomy that we're looking at, right. The proper way to handle this stuff is to have those UI elements turned off by default, right? If a person is someone who is so connected to the game that they are going to really like want to find that extra stuff, it is an easier ask to get them to turn it on than it is an ask to get this kind of compulsive completionist to turn it off, right? Um, because I think most people will orient their play around that default experience. And I like, I don't think that someone who is mildly interested in the game is, is going to show up in the, in the menus and turn on the thing because like they want to burn themselves. It's like, I I just don't think that that's, that's the, the sort of reality of, of, of how it would happen. So that's sort of my, my philosophy. So I, I think I'm going to disagree with you a little bit because I think I think there's a, a factor that you're not totally considering, which is okay. one of the other downsides of having the markers on the map is somebody who values exploration doesn't really get that if, like, they're walking towards a marker, right? Like, there is a part, like, of, of joy, and I, I particularly enjoy this in games, uh, which maybe I, why I find this a little bit more acutely, of me being like, there's probably a thing there, and then I go there, and then there's a thing there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, like, kind of like, Oh, I was clever enough to spot that pattern, to spot that thing, right? And I found it out, and I did that because I was clever, and I didn't, you know, I didn't need anybody to handhold me there. And I think that that's lessened, uh, maybe even kind of like cut off at the kneecaps if I can just go to- toggle that on, right? Because like then I'm then I'm not smarter than someone, right? I didn't do it because of my big brain. I did it because I like you know turned on baby mode and and and, and did it, right? Like I, I I don't you know I don't get the you know the this the the hypothetical sense of of superiority in, in that case, which you know I, I think is like a, a a thing to want, and you know I, I think part of the answer here is not every game has to be for every person, right? Like, yeah. um, and so I'm not saying that like you know no markers is strictly better, but I definitely enjoyed the experience of exploring um, Skyrim, El- Skyrim and Elden Ring, which have like kind of the discoverable markers um, method more than I did. Uh, Far Cry Five, which um, honestly I was never I was never exploring in Far Cry Five, right? I was beelining to a marker, um, or and the other game that reminds me of this is Shadow of War um, or Shadow of Mortar, where I was beelining to the tower and the tower put on, which is this classic UB tower thing, right? You go to the tower, you activate the tower, the tower puts all the markers on the map, and then you just go beep bop boop 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 bop to. Yeah, you know, there's a part of me that actually does like that tower design because it it sort of does make it a, um, uh, a 
I kind of like backhanded toggle in a way, right? Like if yeah. you don't want if you don't want the markers, you don't you don't have to do that that tower shit, right? Just you know, the main quest will pop up. You can go do the main quest. You don't need to like climb these towers or whatever. Um, and I also like the interaction of oh, I'm in a new area. Would you look at that? There's a church. I bet that's a I bet that's like an eagle viewpoint kind of thing in one of these you know like in a, in in an Assassin's Creed or something like that. Um, but it definitely does have that experience of of kind of highlighting the you know putting the the markers on the map, which is a little weird. And not my favorite thing. I almost sort of wish maybe maybe a better version of this would be like buying a treasure map, right? Um, you know, you can imagine a version where you go to a store and you can spend a certain amount of money, right? And it will put the markers on the map for you to go do if that's the kind of thing that you're looking for. Um, but obviously, you're maybe not. That's not what you're interested in. Yeah, maybe. Um, something I I enjoyed is like. Um... Because uh, this is something again, Elden Ring does, or something, and it's something I think that could be done better too. Because I don't think it's particularly well done in Elden Ring, is like those towers, but they don't pop the icons. Like you, you literally just look around, right? I think um, I feel like there's maybe it would maybe it's Breath of the Wild does this where you where you just can't like like it'll like I can't remember what I'm there's there's at least there's there's a game where it'll like if you mouse over something and you highlight it. Then it'll mark it, but I also think that that's not great because that's just kind of like the tower with extra steps. Um, but I think the idea of like you get the vantage point and that lets you see, let, lets you actually see things, and like manually mark them. I think that's a better version. Like for for my exploration taste, that's a better version. That's a that's a version. Yeah, that I, I also like. think I maybe like the Skyrim model most what the, the skyrim model has a lot of advantages one there's a bunch of stuff on the map that is already discoverable right you know where all of the major cities on the map are right, right? and you can also get certain breadcrumbs that will put the marker on the map for you if you accept a certain side quest it'll say go to this place that will put both a quest marker to go there and the marker for the location on the map which i think is pretty it's is a pretty fair sort of um approach and a pretty fair sort of sort of model um, when it when it comes to this stuff, but one of the things that's interesting about Skyrim is that it doesn't really differentiate between these different things, right? Like each of the icons are different, and so I might be able to tell, oh, well, this is a dwarven ruin, right? Because of the icon is like something dwarven related, or this is a barrow den because it has like the the old barrows icon, um, or you know, um, this place is maybe this place is completely unique because it has a completely unique icon. There are a couple dungeons like that, um, so you know around when it comes to um when it comes to skyrim um which is in comparison to something like valhalla right in valhalla you have not just the icons but you also have that little check mark at the bottom of the region right when you're in your map you're looking at a region it's showing you right like here are the here are the individual points through throughout the map right and it's showing you how many of the maximum that you have done right um which is which is which is interesting and i would say that like on one hand i kind of want i sort of wish that there was a difficulty mode that asked me for this level of completion right to sort of counteract the problem that you were that you were talking about before so like to put this in in perspective in valhalla um, you know my character is probably around like level 150 you get a lot of levels in valhalla um and I went up and I found a guy who was 
recommended level 220, right? Um, but I was able to kill him pretty effortlessly, and I think a lot of that had to do with I, I have full cleared all of my zones so far, right? Um, such that I am sort of ahead of the ahead of the zones that I I kind of should be, um, and I do sort of wonder if there was a difficulty that was really tuned for a completionist, right? Something that's like, yes, you want to fully complete this zone before you move on. It will be dangerous for you to not do that thing. Um, would be a an interesting way to approach difficulty rather than just like normal medium hard, right? Um, because if I'm doing only si if I'm doing only the main quests, having the correct difficulty for that is one thing. If I'm doing side quests and the main quest, maybe that's a different difficulty. If I'm doing everything, maybe that's you know a kind of a third difficulty. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's a, I think that's a great point. I think you know an insane difficulty for like or a completion. Like, I don't think you want to call it insane. I think you want to call it completionist, right? Like, um, this is this is the case where kind of like. You know, we talk about, like, fake difficulty versus real difficulty, right? Like, in some cases. But, like, I don't think this is a case where you necessarily want, you know, more advanced enemy patterns. What you want is the difficulty hard enough that, like, you're kind of... You really want to go do everything. Um, which, you know, honestly, I want to say that I think God of War got pretty close to that. Um, really? Interesting. Because um, um, I, I think the I think the biggest problem with, those, with, with that kind of thing is curving it right. Because, like, I found God of War, um, you know, the reboot, to be, like, frustratingly difficult at some points very early on. But then it hit, like, like because I, I was playing it, like, on, like either, either hard or very hard. And very early on, I found it, like, frustratingly difficult such that I turned down the difficulty temporarily. Um, um, but then I turned it back up. And at that point, it felt about right. Um, once I had, like, my, my kind of, like, you know... My feet on the ground, and I had gotten a couple of things done. It's just the opening chapter that felt really a little bit overtuned, um, and so I, th I think I think that I can point to that as a good example, um, especially since I've been waiting for a sequel to that game for a long time. Since it's a very good game. Um, yeah, I mean, interestingly, inter interestingly enough, I also think that's something that is uh, hard to to gauge when it comes to some of these open world games, right? Um, in Valhalla, one of the things that really helped me kill that guy who was 70 eye levels ahead of me was the fact that I had invested my points wisely, right? So yeah. the way that that game works is it's kind of this huge sprawling web, right? Um, and there are kind of minor nodes and major nodes in the web, right? Um, and my my approach to that was I looked at the major nodes that I thought were most important and most impactful and that I wanted to get to the most. Um, and I made smart sort of tactical decisions to get there in as few moves as possible. So at this point, I have, I have a very filled out web when it comes to the major nodes, but I actually, all of the connective tissue in those minor nodes is not... You know, it's not there um, because I've sort of optimized a lot of that sort of out, right? And in a world where I have access to all of these major effects that are giving me huge kinds of power upgrades, um, I think that kind of inflates the, the the level of power that my, my guy is at um, just kind of... Uh, naturally speaking right so for instance one of the one of the nodes that i have says that when i dodge an attack it sort of slows down time for for like a second or two right um where i can move at the appropriate speed but he but but my opponent um can't 
And one of the things that I did in, in that encounter a lot was I triggered this thing over and over and over again, which meant that even though I was only plinking him for very small amounts of damage, I was getting in so many kind of free hits because for every one of his swings, I could get in 10 of my own because I'm slowing down, you know, like I'm slowing down time and all of that stuff like decreases the, the chance that I'm going to get really, um, uh, sort of surprised, uh, by, by extra, extra kind of like damage like that. So, so something, something that, that, that popped into my head is I think along with this, um, what you're talking about is is something unless they can be taken from from JRPGs, especially like the classic ones, is um, uh, super hard optional content, right? Like for like, and that's like the thing that you put put out there for like your your completionists, right? Like the main game is 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 relatively easily done, or you know is is not easily, but like you know it requires less investment. Um, and there's a piece of super hard optional content out there, um, in the game that you can go beat. Uh, for some reward of of some description, and uh, and that's the thing you give to your to your super hyper optimizers, super completionists, um, and I th I think I think that might be the right the right way to do it, right? Like a you know um, you know it's it's kind of like maybe like doing the achievements in um in 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 WoW raids, right? Like extra stuff that, that you're not compelled to do in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I think there's also a lot of opportunity for sort of lateral power in in that sense as well, yeah. right? Like. Um, you know, one of the things about some of these open open world games is that maybe there is, you know, so for instance, in Far Cry, doing certain quests will get you access to special guns that have like, they're typically more powerful than, than normal guns, but they have a very set sort of kind of like loadout. Well, you can only equip four guns at a time, right? right. Um, so... And, and you have to kind of build up to four. You know, it starts at just, I think it starts at just one. Um, or maybe like one in a pistol or something like that. Um, and in a world where you can keep rewarding people with interesting, powerful guns, but they can only ever equip a certain number of them, you kind of get to dodge some of this compulsion aspect, right? Because at the end of the day, I already have guns. And I probably have guns that I like. So why would I need to, you know, feel this, com this compulsion to, to go farther and do more? Yeah, I, I think I think you need again. I'm gonna go back to Elden Ring because I think it, it does it well. Is you need a mix of things that are like things you won't ever use, things that you could theoretically use and are easy to swap. Like this is the charms I'm talking about, right? Like like one of the like uh, there's a whole class of charms in Elden Ring that are like resistance to this type of damage, right? And like those are the one. Like I have like. One of my slots is usually reserved for one of those that I swap in something if I'm fighting that particular thing, right? And those always feel good to get. Um, uh, and so you and then you know on top of that, things you could potentially use, right? Like you know, things you can use, um, things that you can't use but you could use at some point, and they're aspirational, right? Like I got a really big hammer that I can't use yet, right? Like that's the thing I keep putting points into my strength. I'll eventually get to use the big hammer, right? Like, yep. Um, and I think I think you know. I think FromSoft's pretty good at this in general, right? Like, Elden Ring, I think it's, like, you know, obviously I, I, I've been gushing about Elden Ring for weeks, but, like, you know, I, I think it's a master class in, in kind of, like, this this level of design and kind of, like, getting it all kind of, like, right. Um, and also, like, also getting it right in that it doesn't, f you don't feel compelled to do, like, because you don't have the markers on the map, and it's not, like, any of its, like, raw power. Right, like if any of it was like, and you know, some of it, you know, you get souls, right? But souls are not this, are not a thing unique to the dungeons, right? Like they're also out in the open world. I'm um, not souls; they're um, 
runes, right? That's that's the Elden Ring currency. Um, <coughs> um, and so, like, that's... Actually, I think that's part of it, too, right? Like, um, I, I feel like a lot of, like, kind of, like, the base resource in a lot of in a lot of these open-world games is all gets kind of worthless really fast, right? But, like, Elden Ring, I think, strikes a pretty good balance of, as you progress through the game, runes are always valuable, right? Like, even if I don't get something I want out of this dungeon, right, I will get a nice fat stack of runes that I, will, like, use. But at the same time, it's not so necessary that I have to go get that I have to go kill them to, to get enough runes for yep. uh, a level up. So I think Yeah, I mean it, it makes me think that um there see this is this is sort of why I think that era in the twenty in the in the late twenty or the early twenty tens, late really just the early 2010s, is such a fertile ground for some of these games to be at their best, right? I'm talking stuff like Mass Effect 2, Deus Ex Human Revolution, Dishonored is in here, um, obviously um, Skyrim, Skyrim which, we, which we've talked about a bunch, right? And I think one of the things about, uh, about that is that they were smaller games with more curated... Somewhere along the list, things were not... were, were no longer like really kind of like hand picked and started being kind of it feels like procedurally generated right um the difference between mass effect 2 and mass effect andromeda is that andromeda has all these open world sections that have a bunch of things on a checklist for you to go do and those things I don't think they're procedurally generated, but they feel procedurally generated, right? Whereas any of the side content that would have, that was happening in Mass Effect, in, or in, in Mass Effect 2, I mean, all of that stuff was really, really kind of tightly, tightly curated stuff, right? Um, and that is the part where I want to say, like, less is more, right? Yeah. Where that level of restraint actually makes for a better, more streamlined experience. Because, and this is for two reasons. One, you don't run into this situation with difficulty, right? Because you have a, a, a real cap on on the amount of stuff that you can kind of accomplish, right? Um, and even though there's leveling up in Mass Effect, you're getting more powerful and everything like that. The game is in these sorts of bands that, like, I don't really think anybody who is blitzing through the game is going to ha is going to have an impossible time completing objectives, right? Um, nor is someone who is taking them their time and doing absolutely everything. That person is also going to have, you know, a relatively easy, a relatively similar experience. Um, but they're not going to totally outclass the content. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly, right? Which is something that I feel like has happened to me in a lot of these, these, you know, Cyberpunk is a good example. And Cyberpunk is a good example, even though I was mostly trying to do the story, right? But I was just, I realized, hey, I want some Mantis Blades. I saved up for Mantis Blades. I got Mantis Blades. Now Mantis Blades trivialize the entire rest of the game for me. I, I like, it... That's it. The, the game is functionally over. And the only thing I did is I did one romantic subplot with the driver chick who is a nomad whose name I don't remember. And yeah, I did no. the main quest. Yeah. Those are the, those are just, those are the two. That's it. I didn't do anything else. Right. Um, and at that point, I do think it's a, it's sort of like a failure of sort of like difficulty and scaling and creating that meaningful, like that, that meaningful progression. And I do want to say that I, I am actually pretty sympathetic all things considered, um, to the plight of developers who have these sorts of pressures heaped upon them, right? 
Um, one of the things that people don't like about certain certain games like Skyrim um, or Fallout 4 or whatever else is when there are enemies that scale dynamically to their level, right? Because part of the feeling of an RPG, right, is you get to go to a, an area where you dramatically... You, you, you walk into an area and it's very hard. You leave, you level up, you come back. It's easy now, right? That's a huge, that's a huge component to what people feel when it comes to an RPG. This is something we've talked about in WoW before, right? Um, where, you know, there used to be this really dynamic world scaling that basically said, okay, well, any mob that you fight is going to scale up to be about, to be about as powerful as any other mob that you fight. But one of the things that makes you know, the progression of a WoW patch fun is that in the first patch, I'm going and I'm fighting these mobs and they're really, and they're really hard and they're really difficult. But then in the third patch, I can come back to that same area and I can wipe the floor with them. Right. Which is, you know, that's complicated. Yeah. No, I, yeah. Yeah. It's a tough thing. It's, it's, it's a tough thing to, to nail. Right. Cause like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I, I don't know if I've got anything else to add to that, but I think you're absolutely right, right? Like that, like the, you know, everybody complains about the dynamic scaling, but that's like how you keep things in in in, in at, at pace, I guess. Huh. I wonder if there's. I wonder if I can think of a good way to, to solve that, right? Like there there was a thing. I, I remember like reading some of these, like you know, maybe a thing like pins to level that you first discover it at, but like then there's like weird side effects of like you know you run around the map, right? Like you know you pin everything at a low level. Um, uh, or like a way to a way to deal with that problem in particular, right? Because like Elden Ring is obviously very kind of like it's very curated, right? Like I think that I, uh, procedurally generated, I don't think it was the right term. There. I think I think it just felt feels generic. Some of the open world things, um, I feel like I feel like that's true in a lot of these games, right? Like um, a lot of stuff feels generic, um, and I think part of that is like I think part of that's just kind of like resource development, like you know, like re, re, resource availability, right? Like FromSoft. Like, the FromSoft games are good-looking, but, like, they are, like, that kind of, like, double-A-ish space where, like, they look good but not so good that, like, you know, devs can't spend time, like, curating content, right? I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm um, portraying the, the, way it, the, way it, the way it's built wrong, but, like, it feels like the people at FromSoft have the time and the ability to custom kind of, like, mold all of the encounters, right, to feel relatively unique, even if you're building on type of generic building blocks, right? Like a lot of like the, a lot of the kind of like cave dungeons are all obviously the same assets remixed and remixed in different ways. Um, but like each dungeon still has its own kind of like neat trick to it, especially as you progress through the game, right? Like the dungeons get increasingly complex and tricky in terms of like mm -hmm. how you actually solve it. Um, uh, and I think, you know, and, but like there's not, it feels like there's not like a lot of technical work that needs to go on top of that. It's just rearranging different um, existing assets. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know how you, I don't know how you, like you said, how you solve the, the difficulty problem in that case. Cause I, like, I, I think you've like really hit at the kind of heart of the issue there. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely like, uh, <sighs> It's really, it's really tough because, you know, something, something that I remember seeing um, a developer talk about a little bit when it, when it was coming to some of this, um, like, dynamic difficulty stuff is this sense of betrayal, right, um, that, that players can feel around being lied to, 
and the assumption that I'm going into an RPG, these things, these numbers are, are relatively static, but no, they're actually kind of morphing around me all of, you know, like all of the time, right? So for instance, um, God, what is, what is a good example of this? Actually, a good example of this might be completely different. Somebody was talking about RNG in a game once, right? And she made the point, she was like, I don't think players want true RNG things to have the odds that they have. I think they want the the RNG in their games to feel more advantageous than is, like, accurate, right? Um, the point that she was making was... If I have 25% crit, really the game gives me 30% crit because when I have 25% crit, I want to feel it a little, just a little bit more, right, um, than uh, than it's supposed to. And we do know that, that this is a, a feeling that players have. You know, something that, that players definitely talk about, especially with, with stuff like crit, for instance, um, is this feeling that, like... Um, the game, it's the randomness feels unfair, right? Which is why you get in League of Legends, for instance, the the bad luck protection right. that is on that is on the crit system that does, in fact, do this exact thing that I'm describing. It makes the crit actually better and actually feel more sort of you know like up up above what it, what it is supposed to be like. You are technically critting more often than you are supposed to do. And and another developer responded to that that says, I'm incredibly dubious of any advice that that a player would would you know or that that lying to a player is the correct idea, right? That I would show a player you have 25% chance to crit, but they actually crit 35% of the time, right? Um, lying to a player just seems like a like a like a bad idea uh, wh when it comes to this stuff. And I I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily know how to parse that, but I definitely think that it's like a really interesting kind of uh, tough thing. Yeah. Uh, but, but part of yeah. this is that like human perception of numbers and especially perception of chance is much different than like reality is, right? Like like the the pro like when we see twenty five percent crit, we expect that one of the next four attacks will crit, which on average it will. But you could have like what what I can I could do the probability if I what, what's the what's the probability of that right like uh do so. The probability of not getting a crit on your first attempt is seventy five is seventy five percent, right? Probability of not getting a crit on your with two attacks is just over fifty percent. Um, uh, the probability of not getting a crit on three attacks at seventy five percent, uh huh, times point seven five is forty two percent, right? And the chance like if with um with four attacks, right? Come on. Times 0.75. All right. So there is a 30% chance that you will not have crit after four attacks with 25% crit chance, right? Like that's the raw probability, right? Yeah. Um, and that's a pretty significant chance, right? Like that's a 30% chance, right? Um, and so when you don't get it, it feels bad, even though statistically it's not that unlikely to happen, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's, I think that is, I think the problem is that players want determinism, like want, want the, the kind of like intuitive recollection, right? Like seventy-five percent feels like it should happen, right? Like you know, like if you know, missing on a seventy-five percent chance feels unfair, even though you should miss one out of four times, right? Like you know, just to take the opposite, uh, you know, thing point two five. The chance of missing um, 
two attacks in a row that have a 75% chance of hitting is 6.25%, right? That's not super high. Won't happen often, but it'll happen every once in a while, and you'll, you'll be mad about it, right? Like, the, it, it's, yeah. it's, you know... Or like, you know, like the... Yeah, the, an- another piece of this that I think is p- players have a hard time with probability. This is something that actually I had to I had to learn. Um, and I don't even know where I kind of like picked it up. But somebody once said to me that the... So a 10% chance to do something and a 20% chance to do something, right? Those feel kind of similar. But in actuality, you are doubling your effectiveness, Right? right. If you have a twenty percent chance to do something, that's one in five. If you have a ten percent, that's one in that's one in ten. Obviously, right? Um, but you know, it, it's a D and D thing. Is what it is. What is what yeah. it actually came 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 from? I was just somebody, say that. somebody like yeah, it was somebody like laid this out for me in sort of D and D terms, and it was the thing that really like whoa, right? Because like um, you know, for instance, a plus two on any roll on a D twenty is a t- is a plus ten percent chance like success right but that bonus doesn't feel like a lot you know so much of D, so much of pathfinder all of the captain crunching that we've ever done is built on that right like that idea that oh i want to stack up all these all these bonuses and modifiers and the bonuses and modifiers that feel really good are these big beefy ones plus four plus five plus six right um but plus two man a 10 percent chance to increase your your odds of success is like actually pretty huge, right? But we just don't have a great you know we just don't have a great way to sort of conceptualize that or or um uh or feel you know or feel that necessarily, right? Um, which I think is which I think is really interesting. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, because it's just like a psychological thing. There's a there's a couple of things there because I think I think you're absolutely right because like if you notice F- P- or D and D five e and PF two e have much smaller bonuses. And that's because I think, like, the developers didn't even think about it, right? Like, PF1E feels like Rocket Tag at higher levels because you have such enormous bonuses, right? Like, a lot of things, like, you know, a lot of things are, like, you know, basically done deals, right? Like, you got a plus 10 mm-hmm. bonus. It's like, that's a fifth, that's 50%, right? Like, um, and so it's 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 a hard it's a hard thing to feel around. And I think the, the later editions just did the math better, right? They're like, oh, you know, you need to constrain it more, right? Um on top of this, um, something I was thinking about, just we're talking about, um, uh, you know, uh, about, like, like the classic example of, like, feels bad, man, right, is, like, 95% chance next come to with a shotgun to an adjacent enemy and you miss, right? That feels like a cheat, but you know what doesn't feel like a cheat? If instead of seeing 95% chance and then you miss, is if you see, like, you know, you know, hit on a 2 or higher and then you roll a 1 on a d20, right? Like, yeah. Um, and I th- I think that feels a lot better, right? Like, and I don't, I, I obviously the 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 die um, the, the the die aesthetic doesn't necessarily work in all games, but like, I feel like it's like an interesting like psychology PhD paper somewhere, right? Like somewhere in there is like you know why does like seeing ninety five percent and missing feel worse than like rolling a d twenty and the one coming up? Maybe it's because like you, you you see it in front of you, right? Like, what if what if like you know. Instead of like ninety five percent chance, and you just see a miss, is like you know you like you know you see ninety five percent chance, and it like you know spins a number, and then it comes up at like it's like you know you know ninety seven, and it's like you know like with a sad noise effect, right? Like you know would that feel better than just like the miss popping up? Like does like seeing like seeing the random number make you feel better about it? I, I bet you I bet you there's something there. Um, 
Yeah. Anyway, any any you know psychology PhDs looking for a topic out there? That one's free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I don't know. Anyway, um, God, I feel like I feel like this has been a sort of rambly episode, uh, because we're off. The, the, how big is too big? Really, you know, I just want yeah. I just want to put a button on this. My that, this is my thing. Though that golden age was golden was the golden age. You know, whatever. Maybe I want to say twenty ten to twenty fourteen is is kind of the correct uh, is kind of the correct, correct window. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um. Because I think that uh, it was the right amount of content to keep things constrained enough that people didn't burn out and churn, right? Um, and also, it was um, it was much easier to sort of build a a streamlined kind of core experience for a player without having to worry about all of this extraneous bullshit, basically. Yeah, I think I think I buy that. I, I I think I buy that, and I think I think that like, you know, I think you get gems along the way, right? Like again, Elden Ring. I think Breath of the Wild is pretty good. Um, Breath of the Wild, I think, kind of relies on the fact that you're not going to do everything, right? Like it, it kind of explicitly doesn't want you to do everything, but if you do, it like breaks your weapons, so you have to keep like you know, like you always have just as much as you need. If that makes sense. Um, man, I feel like we do a whole episode on that mechanic, right? Like I, mm-hmm. people. Much, much uh, more thorough people than us have, have, I think, done full episodes of their, like, game design shows on the breaking weapons mechanic in Breath of the Wild. Because um, it's, like, literally the entire purpose of that mechanic is to give you things to do, right? Like, you know, it keeps you from burning out because if you keep doing things, you'll break your weapon and you'll go need to find another one, which is just, like, a, a, a fascinating way of dealing with the problem. It's also hated. Like, no one likes that, right? Or, you know... Uh, that's not quite like there are, people will appreciate the design philosophy behind it but hate the fact that it exists the way it does right yeah like, this is the, this is like perennial twitter discourse right you know the 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 weapon breaking system yeah. in breath of the wild i actually i think i do come down on it is a it is a fundamentally uh good system um in the sense that you know like boy i do agree with a designer that you kind of have to break people out of their inertia of just using the one they're like one weapon over and over and over again. Um, uh, but at the same time, man, it's tough to really justify that that level of friction. It, it feels like in, in modern games because players are so sensitive to it. I mean, I don't, I don't, like, I think it's a correctly designed system that feels bad. If maybe maybe that's the right way to put it, or like, it's, I I I don't know. Without without going down the rabbit hole of like how to how to fix it, right? Like, I think it. It solves the problem, but it introduces a different problem that was like heretofore unseen, right? Like, I don't know how you how you deal with it, but that's I think a question for another time. Um, yeah. Well, we're basically at the end of the hour, um, and I'm not going to push it, buddy. How was your week? Uh, boy, my week was actually kind of well. Your there's a bunch, weeks. right? Because we we technically didn't do anything. Yeah. So, um. My week's actually pretty great. Uh, I talked about Control Warrior, right? Did I talk about the yeah, yeah, Control Warrior did. deck I'd been playing in Hearthstone? Um, well, it got nuked from Orbit, which was maybe... I don't know that I've ever seen Blizzard Entertainment nuke a deck so hard as they nuke this Control Warrior deck, right? Um, because five cards in that deck all got all got hit, which was just, like, insane. Um 
even though I do think it was a, a pretty dominating deck, I climbed to platinum incredibly quickly um, by by sort of playing that deck, and and I loved every second of it. Right, like I could. I, it might be my favorite Hearthstone deck I have ever played for that brief, brief window in the meta. Just because, like, there were some things that were so interesting about how the deck played because it gained so much armor. It was called a hundred armor warrior, right? Because it just had all this stuff from from armor in the deck. And one of the interesting things about the deck is that in in a number of aggro matchups, you play the aggressive you play the aggressive deck, right? You don't trade with your opponent's board. You just you go face. You're basically playing face hunter, right? Which seems crazy, right? You, you know, I say that and you must be like, "Buddy, that's that's ridiculous. How on earth does a control deck Go, want to go face and the answer is ag aggressive decks don't have healing you have a hundred armor in your deck you are going to out armor their damage and play threats that are going to beat their face in right <laughs> um, and like that was just really fun that was just like a really fucking fun experience um, but anyway, it got destroyed, and I do think it's sort of fair to destroy a, a deck like that. Something something that I've always felt is true about Hearthstone and also other card games is that I it is bad for a control meta is bad, right? There should always be control decks in a meta, right? There should always be decks at the high end that are trying to to run you out of resources, lock down a game, outvalue you, all that all that kind of stuff. Um, there should always be aggressive decks that are trying to slide under your removal, right? Really just kick your teeth in before you have a chance to, to, to respond. But the real thing that you want in any meta of any Hearthstone game is a mid-range meta, where the best decks in the meta tend to be these kind of mid-range, like, like, you know, halfway point between aggro and and control, essentially, right? Um, and I do think that that that's pretty fair. And the reason that the control warrior deck was so fun at the time it was so fun was because people thought the best deck in the meta was uh, this aggressive deck. They just didn't realize how good the two cards that Warrior got in the mini set were. And I was able to essentially play for two weeks in a in an uh, in an aggressive metagame where control happened to be the best deck in the meta, right? Um, and I thought I was going to be depressed. I thought I was going to, I thought I was going to quit Hearthstone, right? Cause like I said, the only thing that I want to do when I play Hearthstone is I want to play a, a good metagame, right? Um, I just, I want to, uh, I want to go hard for, Hearthstone, when the when the metagame is really interesting and there are really unique matchups that are that are like complex and demanding, right? Um, and lo and behold, Big Spell Mage is an incredibly cool and fun deck that that has come out of nowhere. Big Spell Mage basically relies on um, you, you. The only spells in your deck are very high cost mana spells, right? So, um, you know, it, it runs two blizzards, right? Deal two to everything, freeze your opponent's board. It runs two Rune of the Archmage, which is um, cast 20 mana worth of mage spells at your opponent, right? Um, so they are random, but they will target your opponent if able, right? Um, and two, and that's a nine mana spell. And then two um, dragon, dragon heart locket. 
or something, something like that. I can't remember what it, I can't remember what it's called. Which is um, ten mana spell. Discover two dragons. Right, put them into play. Dragons are obviously very premium creatures. Really, really big, uh, really big stats. And you basically abuse a bunch of these effects that change the mana cost of spells. So, for instance, there's there's a creature that comes into play. It swaps the cost of a spell in your hand and a spell in your opponent's hand. Right. So if you're sitting on this ten mana summon two dragons card, you play this thing. Well, now that that's a two mana summon two dragons card, right? Um, or there's another card that uh, it's it's six mana and it repeats the last spell you you cast, right? So if you have a big really powerful spell loaded up in the chamber, you can you can cast this six mana spell. Boom! Now you also have two dragons at the at the same sort of um, at the same time. Uh, and it turns out that those tempo swings are huge. They are monumental. And they completely own um, certain certain decks where you can just kind of blow people out of the water by summoning dragons turn after turn after turn. Um, and so, I don't know, maybe my Hearthstone dreams are saved. I, I climbed, climbed to plat 5, uh, which is maybe a personal best for me. Um, I don't think I ever made it to Diamond ever in Hearthstone. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Yeah, that's that sounds that sounds like a ton of fun. How, how did they nuke... Um... How did they new Control Warrior? I'm curious. Okay, so the real thing that made it tough for Control Warrior, the real reason it got uh, it got nuked, was um, there were a few different types, and they wanted to target each of each of the types of the Control Warrior, right? So there was the type I was playing. That's the hundred armor Control Warrior. The thing they did there was actually pretty simple. There was one card. It was an eight mana five eight, and when you play it, it deals five damage to a target, and you gain eight armor, right? Pretty, you know, pretty good. They they just shaved that down. You don't gain eight armor, you gain five armor. Fair enough, right? Um, there was another card called Shield Shatter, um, which was a, is a 10-mana card that costs one less for each armor you have, right? Um, Shield Shatter used to be essentially zero mana, deal five to everything on the board. Um, as long as you could generate the armor, and obviously that deck was very good about generating the armor, you could throw out a Shield, a shield Shatter and, generally speaking, take care of, you know, your opponent's board. That had the damage dropped from five to four, um, where, you know, five is a pretty useful breakpoint, Um uh, four is obviously just going to shave off some of the power in the boards that um, in the boards that you can take care of. Another really powerful card in that deck was called uh, School Teacher. So the thing that makes School Teacher work is School Teacher is a four mana um, minion. It comes into play and it and it gives you a minion, this one one little chump minion, right? But that minion gets a battle cry that you discover, which is a spell from your class that costs three or less, right? So the real power of school teacher is that you can discover spells like shield block or heavy plate that increase the amount of armor that you get, right? Because that's what that's what we're trying to do in in this sort of a deck, right? So you play this four mana guy, you get a one one who casts a three mana cost spell, so you kind of have this two mana like discount. Uh, on top of it and importantly it's a battle cry right um, and right now in the metal game there is brand Bronzebeard who comes into play and doubles the like doubles your battle cries so you play brand you play a school teacher uh he gives you two little one one minions and then you can play both of those and they double up the spells that they that they cast for just huge amounts of armor or damage or value or you know kind of whatever you're looking for 
Um, and then the last piece is they nerfed uh, from the depths. Wait, right? well, well, so, wait, did they do anything with school teacher to nerf it? Oh, I'm sorry. They just re they reduced school teacher stats. School teacher used to be a four mana five four. It is now a four mana four three. Right. And to be fair, school teacher was a neutral card. It was run in a lot of decks. It was it was maybe I would say the best deck in the or the best minion in the game, just in terms of like value, raw like value, neutrality. Yeah. Um, anyway, and then the last thing that they did is there was uh, another really key piece of the of the control warrior combo, which was called from the depths. Right, uh, the big mechanic in uh, Rise. No, it's not called Rise of Ashara. Tre Treasures of the Lost City is, is whatever it is, whatever the set is, is the idea is you are putting stuff on the bottom of your deck, and then there's a mechanic called Dredge, which is you look at the bottom three cards of your deck, you choose one of them to put it on top, right? What From the Depths did is it puts, um, it reduced the bottom five, the, the cost, the mana cost, uh, of the bottom five cards of your deck by three, and then, and then you dredge after that, right? So you dredge up something that is, you know, obviously much cheaper. And there was a, a particular va uh, variant of, of Control Warrior that had this um, kind of mildly complicated charge minion combo where you play a minion, you copy it, um, and then you give that minion Wind Fury so that it just hits... You know, it's a 32 damage, 36 damage combo, actually. Um, and From the Depths was the key card in that because you needed to reduce the mana of your combo pieces. So you would do this thing where you you tuck cards from your hand onto the bottom of your deck and then you reduce the mana cost with From the Depths in order to get the combo pieces for cheap and win the and win the game that way. And because there's a bunch of the different variants or whatever, all of the, like, the compounding effect of all that is that Control Warrior itself uh, actually kind of got... Is uh, dead. Actually kind of got crushed. I, to be fair, my understanding is that it is not, it is not dead. Uh, it is still pretty good, um, but you know, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. It is. It is no longer number one. We are back in a mid-range meta, which is which is probably going to be good. Nice. Huh. All right. Well, from my from my point of view, I what I played some Destiny two weeks ago. Um, we beat Anduin on Tuesday. Which was like fun, um, of, so so I, I've got some, I've got some thoughts on some stuff. Which is this is gonna be very monk focused. Um, uh, maybe two weeks ago, I read an article on Peak of Serenity, which is the, um, uh, which is the monk kind of centric website for World of Warcraft monks. Um, and the article was like, Windwalker is a toxic spec, um, and <gasps> the. Basically, the thesis of that of that uh, of that piece was that um, Windwalker is like not so great at single target and pretty good at at AOE, and so your parse as a Windwalker monk is dependent on basically your, the rest of your team being bad, right? Like they like they have to like basically be focused on single target pretty exclusively in order for you to generate the numbers to like parse really well because. You're only parsing really well if you're doing big spins on things, right? And if anybody else is hitting ads, then you're not doing as well, right? Like, and I can I can see this in like my and this is very I'm very sensitive to this in my Anduin parses because like there are times when I will be like you know cruising pretty high on the damage charts, and that's solely because during like the the ads phase, I get most I get more more spins out before like you whirling them all down, right? Like, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and. The, the argument in the article is this is toxic because, you know, 
ideally for me, you don't whirlwind during that, and I get a bunch of spins off, and that makes my parses better, right? Because And because I can't make up that damage on single target because I'm not good at single target. And this was written pre-Sepulcher, um, but I definitely feel that, right? Like, I have it less bad than, like, um, like the the um, the the theoretically perfect monk um, or the theoretically best monk because you're supposed to go Necrolord and use Bonus Brew. But Bonus Brew is an AoE intensifier, right? Like, at least um, Feyline Stomp has some, like, single target utility. Um, so, um, and, like, you know, I, like... It doesn't, this doesn't make me mad because it's not like we're like a super competitive raid group. And it hurts me a little bit just because like my parses are the things that I compare myself against. Um, but I like have felt pretty solidly throughout the expansion that like, you know, if I'm not running bonus, I'm never going to parse like at the top of the charts on any of the AOE fights. Um, or not on the top of the charts, on the top of like my class, right? And any of the AOE fights. Um, and uh, and on top of that, like it, it, it's... Like, it doesn't bother me so much, but I get why it's a problem. Um, apparently, this isn't a bigger problem than Mythic Plus, but, like, as... as I forget what the, the dude's name is, but as Pika, the Pika Serenity guy says, it's like, I don't care about Mythic Plus. It's I only do Mythic Plus as, like, an enabler for raiding, and I don't even do that, right? Like, I just I just raid. Um, and so I, I don't... I'm not mad about it. I just thought it was, like, an interesting observation that I think is very true. Um, yeah, I, I have some... It, it, it's interesting because I also read a an article that almost had a, the opposite perspective, right? Which was um, it was talking about this is this is in competitive wow. It was talking about how it's actually incorrect for everyone to be doing their AOE rotation most of the time. Typically, you want there to be a spread of AOE focused and single target focused like characters both sort of focusing on their specific niches inside of the pull. And, and, and it included a, bun a bunch of math to, ba to, to back this up. But basically, the, the, the core idea is most classes have an AoE rotation, and most classes have a single target rotation. And there are some classes that are really good at single target, some classes that are really good at AoE, obviously, right? Um, and what tends to happen is people think of Mythic Plus as a place where they want to be performing their AoE rotation, where they are trying to perform their AoE rotation kind of like over and over and over again, right? Um, and they... Um, and so what's happening is everyone walks into a pull, they're all blasting AoE, right? But pulls tend to be a little bit mismatched when it comes to, like, health. So all of the little ads go down, and then there's one big ad that is still up. Everyone switches to single target to kill the big ad. And basically, the math that the guy was talking about was, well, actually, the best way to kill a pack is for everything to die at, at precisely the same moment, right? That is the highest DPS right. version of any, of any individual pack. And so what you really want is you want your single target-focused guy to be single targeting the big, you know, beefy ad, and you want your AOE people to be doing the AOE stuff because, generally speaking, that is going to line up the the health bars so that the single target guy dies when also all of the ads die, and you have maximized sort of the DPS over time um, of of the pull itself. And this is all in the context of timing very hard keys, right? Where, you know, he was kind of making this argument that, like, what this is a thing that people can do to save themselves to to shave real real amounts of seconds off of pulls, right? Because if you shave, you know, three to five seconds off of 
every pull in the dungeon, you know, times that by 20, that's a minute, a minute and a half um, kind of thing. Um, and it's interesting to me that the focus there was not about parsing, right? It's not about yeah. damage meters at all. The focus there is about saving time in order to do in order to do the mythic plus thing, which reminds me of what that guy said. Um, I brought this up a couple of weeks ago. How one of the WoW designers talked about the way that they design things and they don't design things around parsing, right? Um, where he kind of said that the goal that we put in front of you is kill the boss, time the dungeon, right? That's what we think. That is the main goal of this experience. If you want to layer on a supplemental goal, right? This little extra goal on top of it um which is parse well right fair enough you can do that if you want but it will it, it like th that's not something that we are designing for yeah excuse me essentially so no I, I i think you're absolutely right i think part of the balance there is that timing a key feels much like more like it's owned by every person in your five-man group whereas in a raid you're kind of like like a smaller cog in a bigger machine. And so I think parsing is kind of like, like how much a pulse depends on your own success is, or feels less tightly coupled, if that makes sense, right? Like, like whether or not we down Anduin is down to whether or not, you know, you know, Billamong or Bairn in particular are up, or, you know, maybe um, or in particular up, is less true than it is with a mythic key, if that makes sense. Does that make sense at all? Yeah. Um, you know, and like, like I said, I'm not mad about it. I just thought it was like an interesting, because like, because like, it's hard to get a good sense of like how much you're contributing to the fight without something like, a, like a damage meter, right? Like, you know, I can't tell like, like outside of like, you know, particular kind of like, oh, I stopped the bad mechanic from killing, wiping the raid. Right, which are like moments, but they're typically few and far, far between, and usually can be picked up by one of a number of people. Right, um, your only kind of like easy way to measure measure that is like how much you, how much damage you're doing, right? Um, and like I think you're like to your to your point, right? Like this is something that that um, he brought up in the article, which is um, you know like the the correct way for us to do to do whatever fight was one of the fights in the last right I can't remember exactly which is for me to solo all of the ads and everybody else to single target the boss and then not only is that maximally efficient but I'm also parsing well and I'm happy right but like you know things are gonna like naturally bleed over right like if I happen to just like if the ads happen to be in the wrong place right like like ambient AOE is going to take away from my parse right like which is you know again. Like you said, not the, the the core mechanic, but it, it is a thing that people care about. I don't. I I think the thesis of his article is like it is never good for a class to be good at AOE and bad at single target because then you create these weird perverse incentives um, in terms of like uh, and for, for rating in particular um, uh, for for the way that that goes right. Like you, you yeah. I, d I also definitely think that it is much worse for Windwalker Monk than for a lot of other classes, right? Like there are some classes that I do think are very like AOE focused in um, in how they sort of like operate. You know, the best classes in the game tend best class in the game. The meta like the yeah. the, the really meta classes in the game tend to be this thing of like we're gonna pull absolutely everything. And you're gonna do your thing, and they are all going to die, right? Um, you know, this is Fire Mage in 9.0. This is Destruction Warlock in 9.2, right? Um, but like, 
I, th- I, I, I just don't think that players have uh, uh, I think players have kind of an an incorrect assumption. This is another sort of thing like the probability, right? Like players just sort of assume that those things where they are there, they are going to pop off in that way are more common than they will be. Right. Um, which is why I feel like when I was like pugging keys in 9.0, I was seeing fire mages and I was dumpstering them on the charts because nobody fucking pulls like that. You know what I mean? Like most people are going to pull five guys, you know, maybe, maybe, Three to six guys. If you're lucky, you'll get six guys in a single fucking pack. And it's just like nobody, nobody wants to, to, to like risk the whole thing by pulling a million mobs and hoping to God that the tank is going to survive and can also keep aggro so that you can perform your like incredible, crazy, like burst macro thing. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, but yeah, I, I know I thought that was interesting. I also thought, like, I think the internet fight's super fun. Um, you know, also like repeat pulling on Raglan. It was a little bit less fun, but it was still it was still good. Um, uh, yeah, I felt like we were really far off on Raglan, and I was just like, I don't think any of this matters. <laughs> like, there's no way we're killing him. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you have do you have any thoughts as to as to why that was in particular? Like, uh, I just think that we're damage is is kind of behind. You know, my my initial thought on Raglan was that we were pulling too much damage off of the boss in order to do in order to do the things. Um, but um, uh, I th- I think maybe we just didn't have the the kind of damage that we needed to to really kill the boss, um, which is maybe because you know a bunch of the the sort of super high performers were out. Obviously, Maroc wasn't there, for instance. Um, but you know, uh, no, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and like to your point, right? Like I was I was pulling off to do the ads because one I'm mobile and two again the AOE thing. But they're not even like the, the little tiers. Not even like arranged well so i can get like a good aoe burst off right like yep um yeah i mean when we were originally doing Rigalon, i actually my my thought process actually was that too many people were pulling off right which is why i specifically tunneled the boss on that fight where i was just i basically never touched the ads even though i'm also really strong on the ads because i run Corain in night fey and i'm getting that five percent or that 25 percent crit all the time when you first damage something right which is obviously like really powerful so like me going and soloing a thing is is actually pretty um is actually pretty uh easy um but i just sort of think i think my current my current thinking about the a lot of these wow encounters is that 95 percent you learn 95 percent of the fight in the first 10 pulls right you know, once you sort of see all the mechanics a couple of times, we're most of the way there, right? And it is, at that point, it is this, is this, you know, this real, you know, cranking, just refining and refining and getting better and better. And the, the process of sublimation, right? This is something that I was watching Farouk talk about where, where he was kind of like, yeah, I just got this muscle memory. And I'm like, that's, that's it. It's the process of sublimation where you are where you are sort of packing away the information almost into your subconscious so that you know to expect some of these these things to happen and you don't make the kinds of mistakes that you have been making kind of this whole time, right? So a good example might be um, the ads on Anduin, actually. Well, so so the thing about the ads on Anduin is I felt like we were constantly breaking the ads on on Anduin, right? Um, and it's just about learning the little, you know, just like learning the, the little things of like the first one, the one that's going to get the skull marker because they come out one, two, three. And I think people figured out that like, oh, actually, 
the first one up is the one that's going to have the skull marker. So that's where I'm going to go to. And you see the little particle on the ground, right? And you just sort of like follow that. Um, compared to when we were first doing them and it was just like we were constantly putting bleeds and shit on the other on the other Anduin ads and that was like breaking them out of the like breaking them out of the CC. And it's just like little just little things like that is just like I don't know, making it making it better. Yeah, I mean we also we also got to the point where like if one got broken it could be handled by like you, right? Like you, could, you know, you could you could keep it locked down outside of like a long term CC. I also think like we did enough rotations that like essentially since we didn't explicitly say who was CCing the other two, it just kind of like came out, right? Like because like I definitely had moments where I was like, do I need to paralyze it? Do I not? Do I need to paralyze it? Do I need to not? And like by the end, by the time by our kill, it was like I don't, and like I need to keep an eye out in case like something goes wrong. But, like, I can confidently go to Skull and start beating on it instead of, like, doing this kind of, like, eh, thing. Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, I, so I actually think that's the incorrect thing. The thing that we did in my other raid group when it came to the ads was we just assigned people to the ads. Because the idea was, it was just like, okay, when the ads spawn, it, you know, it was me and it was me and Patrick. Me and Patrick are going to go to uh, Square. You know, the two rogues. The rogues are going to go to X. Everybody else is going to go on Skull, right? Because just between, you know, he's playing a Death Knight, I'm playing a Warrior, the two rogues, obviously they both have kidney shots and shit like that. You know, we can just kind of keep these things locked up long enough that, you know, you can make the rounds and they can, and, and the main group doing the Skull stuff kind of kind of comes over. I also think that um, it is theoretically better to have, to be damaging the ads than to not be damaging the ads. Um, like, this was a point that that another friend of ours, Jeff, was making, where um, somebody was like, well, why don't we just CC the ads and do them one at a time? And he was like, a low health ad is actually much better for the raid than a high health ad. So we gain a lot by assigning people to the ads early, even if it's pulling their DPS off of Anduin, right? And getting those ads low, because the last thing that we want is a situation where people come out of that downstairs phase and to win phases but the ad is you know um the ad is super powerful or something along the lines um and uh and blows up the raid basically in the chat lou says what i learned from Anduin is that if one person's blind is down we're clearly doomed because no other cc matters <laughs> <laughs> no, that's spicy <laughs> uh, yeah no it's uh no i i i i had a lot of fun with 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 Anduin, you know, learning it. Like it, it, it definitely felt like a push. Um, I don't know. Regalon has felt worse, but you know, I guess we'll get there. Maybe. Regal. I think the thing that sucks about Regalon is it's such a it's such a throughput fight. Like obviously there are like mechanics to do, but Anduin it felt like once we clicked on the mechanics, everything else was fine. You know, we didn't really have to we didn't have to like worry about um kind of the the rest of it, um, but. Rigalon, first of all, we haven't even actually finished off the uh, the actual like mechanics portion, right? Um, and and then underneath that portion, there's this huge throughput check, right? Of like, can we get him down? Um, even on our best pulls, we were probably 20% of his health bar from actually getting a kill. We would have hit it in a rage and just died. Um, and that's going to be like the tough thing to really get to the bottom of. Um, so yeah, 
Yeah, we need to find out Vel's secret. Yeah, I also this is, this is referring to to my friend Vel, who's who tanks the other group. I have no idea what is going on with those tanks in the in that downstairs phase. Because when we were doing Rygalon with them, it was a warrior and it was a death knight, and they were just able to soak both orbs with no trouble at all. Uh, but our our tanks were having a, a a bunch of problems with them, and I feel like there's got to be some secret in there um, to to you know get to the get to the bottom of. Yeah, like somebody just doesn't know them. But like there, there's some mechanic that we're not understanding, right? I can see that. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Well, no, I'm I'm considering switching up my cup like my particular covenant tree just to see if I can like squeeze a little bit more out. She's a little bit more juice out. I mean, what, what, so you're using Dreamweaver right now? I'm using Dreamweaver because I am like in per, my perpetual problem in like every game is I am too ham, and so like pod tender saves me from like a, a, an excessive ham moment. Um, okay. Yeah, I think I think Corain is really good on the uh, I, on Rygalon because he's constantly spawning the orbs, right? Yeah, I, I um, think so I'm getting Corain procs all the time. Corain's the the third tree, right? It's the 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 centaur, um, centaur thing. I think for like crit is not very valuable for me, so I think I'm supposed to be using oh, okay. the first tree. But I'll look into it. I'll make it like I have noticed that like is very infrequent that my pod pops and that we actually win the uh, the encounter. Like the best it does for me is save me like a uh, an augmented room, um, and that's it. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, I I go to him. Sorry, Lou. Um, I'm sure that you have saved me from more than one death uh, from going to him. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, otherwise, with my week, I played a bunch of Magic the Gathering Arena. Um, Fuck. Uh, I Sorry, not about Magic, but just I realized that I didn't talk about something else in our go week. For have, it. You seen, have you seen any of the Overwatch 2 details? No, because I don't care. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, fair enough. So, uh, so I weirdly do care because, as we've talked about, I've been I got mildly back into Overwatch over the last couple of weeks or maybe months at this point. Um, and uh, and at the Microsoft event, at the Xbox event, they announced that Overwatch Two is officially releasing uh, in October, October fourth, um, and that they're changing up how how the game plays and it is going to be seasonal, right, uh, compared to. Uh, what's kind of happening now, which is uh, free-for-all, nothing, or whatever. And so the seasons are nine-week seasons. They're going to have a battle pass. Um, That's with pretty them, obviously. short, right? Yeah, that it is pretty short. It's two months, right? So it is nine-week seasons with a battle pass. Um, and on top of that... Um, the plan is that every every season inter introduces something new, right? So it is either a new hero or a new map, right? Every uh, every other season, it alternates between the two. So in any year, you're going to get three new maps and three new heroes, which is actually kind of nuts, right? Like, if you think about the cadence of how often Overwatch has, has released its heroes, you know, maybe it's about two a year, maybe, maybe on a good year there have been three a year. Um, but for the most part, Overwatch just really hasn't been releasing stuff on that kind of a time a time schedule um but uh but just sort of seeing it laid out to say oh yeah we're gonna get a hero here we're gonna get a map here we're gonna get a hero here we're gonna get a map here is really interesting and i'm very excited to kind of see how you know that that sort of whole thing plays out they're also getting rid, rid of loot boxes which everybody is always you know constantly complaining about though funnily enough i am now seeing lots of people complaining about battle passes which i understand less 
the, the argument against loot boxes I do get, right? The upside there is the Christmas tree effect. I'm sorry. Uh, it's like... The, the Christmas tree effect is you go downstairs on Christmas morning and you rip open a present and you don't know what's inside and, and that's cool and fun, right? That's, that is the upside of a loot box, right? Um, that's why it is fun to kill a boss and get the, the piece of gear that you want rather than to kill a boss and get a piece of, of, of currency and then go buy that thing off of a vendor, right? It's more fun to get things when you are surprised by them. Um, the downside of a loot box obviously uh, has all of these implications when it comes to sort of uh, like the psychological addictive effect of these, you know, kind of things. I would dispute a lot of the the way that people talk about these sort of things, but I'm, I'm relatively on board with, you know, the the flyover view of. This is this is a reason why loot boxes are, are not as good. Um, but apparently there is a big backlash against battle passes from a FOMO perspective, where the idea is like, oh, it's weapon it's weaponizing FOMO to 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 put the to put stuff on a battle pass where you you have to get it, which is something that we we definitely talked about. Um, but I've just I, I didn't realize that uh, it was such a divisive, negative sort of point. Uh, when it comes to these things. Yeah. No, I mean, I feel that. Um, I don't know. I, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that makes it, like, everybody hates everything that, like, you know, like, I don't think there's going to be a good model ever just because, like, you can't just give everybody everything, right? Like, or else, like the game's not gonna make money, right? Like, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, people are really mad about Diablo Immortal, right? You know, with um, with with Diablo Immortal, it's that the the way to sort of power up in the deep deep end game is to run these things called Elder Rifts, and um, and you can always run them, but like they only have a chance to drop very high powered legendary gems if you put in a key essentially kind of and and you buy those keys for cash right so basically the idea is like imagine uh, it's not quite the same but imagine a mythic plus key you had to pay for that right um in order to in order to to do it and somebody mathed it out and uh it, it would cost a hundred thousand dollars you know for someone to max out their diablo character which you know i've i don't i, I don't particularly like diablo immortal and i don't I, I think I sort of just think that a lot of mobile game monetization is pretty predatory. Yeah. And there's other stuff in, in Diablo Immortal that I like much worse. For instance, when you complete a dungeon, you get a big pop-up that's like, hey, would you like to spend $2, $2 to gain, you know, a chest of loot from that dungeon? That bothers me way more than this thing about, like, crests or whatever. Um, but then I just started, like, looking into how other games do it, which are way worse. Um in terms of doing kind of all of these things. Also, a thing about Diablo Immortal that's apparently unique is that the liter the the whole game is literally free-to-play, free to right? Um, typically, apparently, what happens with some of these action RPG mobile games is the beginning stages of the game are free, but then you pay for access to deeper portions of the game, right? Um, so, you know, you'll... you'll Whatever you know, whatever whatever that sort of looks like. Um, so uh, honestly, if it was just paying for access, I feel like that'd be fairer, right? Like you know, it's kind of like wow, right? Like you get up to level twenty for free, and then you have to pay for the game, right? Like, um, but on top, but you know, it's you got got all the predatory micro stuff on top of it, right? Which is uh, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, Lou says in the chat that by the time you hit the final dungeon, the interstitial is $40, uh, which is bad. You know, I don't, I don't play mobile games. So, you know, doesn't mean either. bother me. I almost sort of wonder if they, if they did themselves a disservice by putting it on the, uh, uh, the battle net launcher, like, oh like yeah, they should making have. it feel like a piece, a PC game. Right. So that people are looking at it under those sorts of, you know, scruples because just the rules for PC games are so different. Yeah, Just like let whales have their fun Diablo theme thing and don't play it is, is my attitude, right? Like, you know, if yeah. somebody really wants to pay a hundred thousand dollars to have the best Diablo character, I don't care. Like that's their business, right? Like, um, you know, uh, I hit Paragon 17 and now I'm taking a break. It's hit the boring grind phase fast. Yeah, I, I just think that's where I, Diablo lives in, in my brain. I Like, if there are people who are, like, really hardcore Diablo people, maybe they're Path of Exile people or whatever, right? Like, I, it is hard for me to sort of, uh, to, to sort of get on board with that. Maybe Diablo 4 will be different for some reason. Who knows? But I don't know. I, this sort of genre has always sort of, uh, been a little bit muted, uh, for for me yep um one thing i want to talk that i realized about while you were talking about that is um i've i played before the saturday before the, the last aborted episode um i played um a rumble first during the beta and that game is sure. fucking awesome um i am so excited for that to come out uh for real um it is essentially like it's it is your standard battle royale but instead of guns it's like fighting game moves and wrestling moves and um, the combination, like, it's, it's small. I think it's, like, 40 people instead of 100 or whatever. But the fights play out much slower, right? Because it's, like, it's like a mini fighting game thing instead of a... Uh, 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 and, you know, you've got a lot, of, a lot more kind of, like, <coughs> little interactions. Um, and there are some great fucking feeling things, right? Like, there are a bunch of, like, um, moves that, like, move the other player around. The best feeling I ever got in one of these games or one of the matches is I was like on top of a tower. I got this like tackle move and I tackled someone off the top of the building. And like, as you fall further, it like put bigger effects on you. So like, it's like this screaming comment and I hit the ground and kill the person. It's just like, Oh, so good. Um, I, that actually sounds really appealing to me because the, the thing that I've always complained about in these battle Royale games is like that they are these long distance snipe fests. Right, which is what what really appealed to me about spell spell thing spell spell book spell 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 break spell break there spell we go. break yeah. yes um we, you know there really was not a lot of that like long range it's all this sort of like mid range um with very uh with very kind of globby uh projectile based weapons right um and so yeah so the idea of uh of a battle royale using those kinds of rules is is really interesting it's really cool next time it gets into beta i'll i'll, I'll have to get you on board fi uh faster just because okay like, it is so yeah we, we have weirdly done a lot of episodes on oh, battle royales yeah. it maybe is like one of the most popular genres we've ever talked about <laughs> just because we've done one on PUBG, warzone you know apex it's, it's, um etc yeah yeah spell break right like yeah all right. Well, I just want to shout that out because it is so much fun. It is like I, I could see like I could see myself sinking hours and hours and hours into it um, when it comes out. So, um, yeah. Um, but uh, that's. Uh, do you want to talk about anything else? Or should I go into to the wrap up? All right. I'm good. Well, if you'd like to tell us what you think about anything you talked about on this episode, you can email us at simbirsplaygames.com or podcast.simbirsplaygames.com. You can follow us at twitch.tv slash simbirsplaygames where these go out live. 
Um, rate review us on all the platforms. We've got a Patreon too. If you feel like throwing us a couple of bucks, um, pay for our hosting fees, I guess. Um, uh, that's everything I have, buddy. You have anything else you want to promote? Uh, I have nothing else I'm looking to promote. All right. Well, in that case, uh, until wait, no, no, you should, you, you were in, you were in Jeff Keighley's Summer of Gaming or the Gorilla Games. Oh, yeah. you're right. I was. Uh, yeah. I sorry. That listen. That was last week. Mango. <laughs> that doesn't fucking count. Yes, I was in Jeff Keighley's Summer of Gaming. I, we we were in Gorilla Collective where my voice showed up uh, a whole bunch and people pointed out that I sound exactly like this guy called the Completionist who I have never heard of, but I watched one of his videos and I was like, fuck. Damn it. <laughs> I do sound exactly like that guy. Yes. So we, we published two new videos. One is the Slug Cat Showcase for the new Rain World DLC we're working on, which just talks about the different Slug Cats um, that, uh, that you know, you can play in uh, in Rain World, which is like a, a, a 2D survival platformer, right? Um, and then the other one is the gameplay overview for our, you know, our upcoming uh, roguelike, which is called Zoetti, um, which is about sort of... Um, using poker hands to like like to pair or three of a kind or something along along those lines to activate certain skills rather than having you know a kind of more traditional roguelike deck builder where you know you're drawing cards and you are playing the cards like you would in, in sort of magic the gathering um zoetti man zoetti is tough and the reason i made that gameplay video is because like it is hard to grok it when I just say, oh, you use poker hands to activate skills. You're like, huh? When, what, does that, what does that actually entail? But I feel like once people get the demo, they are going to immediately kind of like click on to to what makes Zoetti so fucking cool. So, yes, those are both on the Yakupar Games uh, YouTube channel. And please go check them out because they're cool. Yep. And my voice is in them. I'm super excited for Zoetti. So. Uh, Are you really? Yeah. No, I mean, like, it looks like the type of game that I re like. I really enjoyed. Um, sure. Uh, Slay the Spire and like saying the yeah. same that kind yeah. of kind of thing. Um, but my headset is dying apparently. So before it does, <laughs> I'm going to say until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.